0: Alan is not the real Santa Claus, the guy in the North Pole. Obviously, I say this to standing little kids who might be listening to me right now. That guy in the North Pole is amazing. Alan is not that guy. Alan's just a guy who dresses up as Santa sometimes. Alan doesn't have Santa's flying reindeer. Alan doesn't have legions of elves backing him up. And most of all, Alan doesn't have his years of experience.
1: This is my first year as Santa, my first... Oh, I'm going the wrong way. He's driving to his very first chair gig. Okay. I'm, I'm so nervous. I, I, I'm, I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm really, really nervous.
0: A chair gig, you sit in a chair, talk to kids about what they want for Christmas. One of our producers, the de Kornfeld, rode with him to this job. This was in uh, Redlands, California, an hour or so east of Los Angeles. Alan is an earnest guy with a kind face who, and he would tell you this himself, tends to overthink things a little. Really, he told Aviva, he's not sure what to expect at this gig. Like, what could go wrong? So he's just been trying to prepare for everything by making some lists, checking them twice.
1: Last night, I made checklists on my phone for all the things that I would need and all the things that I would potentially need. I have a backup for almost everything that I wear. How come? Well, um, in case a baby spits up, I need another shirt. If if the coat gets dirty, I need another coat. And you know, I have to have extra gloves. And I've been kind of manic about trying to anticipate all the catastrophes that could happen one way or another and
0: prepare for them. He's also worried about his beard. He's fifty three, so his natural beard is still mostly brown.
1: So I started. Uh, bleaching my beard in June and my beard started getting smaller. The bleach was damaging it.
2: So it's breaking off.
1: Yeah.
0: He's tried some expensive hair products to stop the damage but it's still a little shorter than he wants. And maybe his greatest anxiety going into this gig was the questions that the kids might ask him. Would he say the right thing? There might be uh,
1: you know a, a child with a real problem like you know they're their mom is gone or somebody's uh, incarcerated or something like that. And I can't, uh, I can't bring anyone back that they've lost. And I really worry about being asked about that. I can't bring someone home who's on a deployment somewhere.
0: He frets and drives on his way to the gig, two full Santa costumes in the bag. You know, Christmas comes around every year, always the same, same songs and the same stage props and the same specials on TV, you can get numb to it. It's so easy to lose the magical feeling that so many people had as kids around the holiday. But one thing you can say about Alan, he is not feeling numb. Just the opposite. He is on high alert. Not just because, you know, he wants to be a perfect Santa for these little kids. Mainly he's that way because it is his first time in the chair. And there are all kinds of reasons that that is a big deal for him that we're going to get into in a minute or two. But my right now is when you're trying something for the first time, you can just, I don't know, taste all the potential and excitement of what it could be. You feel feelings, which is why this Christmas here at our show, we thought it would be nice to spend an hour with people who are not doing what they've ever done in the past at Christmas, who are not doing the same old, same old. We want to spend the hour with people who are trying something brand new at Christmas because they have a shot at some deep Christmassy feeling. WBEZ WBZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ara Glass. Stay with us. Act one, does Santa believe in himself? Okay, so Alan, or maybe I should say Santa Alan, is on his way to his first chair gig, as we said. Producer of Eva Kornfeld went with him to see how he would do on that gig. But to understand why he is so nervous and what he hoped to get out of the gig, You kind of have to understand what the job uh, means to him in the first place, and so that is where Aviva is going to start.
2: Before getting into the Santa business, Alan had a job that was sort of the opposite of being Santa. He was a corrections officer at a state prison. He'd gotten into the work because he needed the money and stability and stayed for over two decades. But he hated it and felt increasingly queasy about the whole system and his role in it. And then in 2017, he got a break from it, Though, not under great conditions, he got really sick and ended up having to take nearly a year and a half off from work for medical leave. He got depressed, stopped shaving, grew a long beard. One day, to cheer himself up, Alan and his wife Erin decided to go to a comic book convention.
1: Because, obviously, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, and I enjoy that sort of thing, but I went there and I wasn't really having a very good time. And, you know, I was taking a break from walking around in the convention and I'm sitting in a little cafe and I'm, you know, having something to drink or eating a sandwich. I don't really remember. But there's this guy there and he says, hey, I like your beard. And I went, oh, um, thanks. And he gave me this little card. And what it is, it's a a recruitment card for this fraternal order of real bearded Santas.
2: Huh. There's something very sort of Tied to the real world about the idea of recruiting a Santa when it feels like it should just be like some snow falls on your shoulder or something and you become Santa.
1: Yeah, but no, this was just a guy uh, sitting around at a Comic-Con.
2: I talked to over a dozen first-time Santas in reporting the story. Nearly everyone had this in common. It was someone else who first identified them as Santa. Turns out... That is the magical snow that falls on your shoulder. Alan shows a business card to his wife, Erin, who suggests he dress up for their godson's kids. Christmas is still months away, but it might give him something to look forward to.
1: I'm thinking, okay, well, I I do have this beard now, and uh, I've always been uh, definitely on the rotund side of things, so I've got that working for me. And I went, well, I should... Quit feeling sorry for myself and maybe do something with this now.
2: Alan figures he'll play Santa, just this once, as a nice thing to do for his family. Since he's like a grandfather to these kids, Alan was worried they might recognize him. He bleached his beard white and asked a friend who knows how to sew to make him a red suit. But on Christmas Eve, as he's heading over to the house, he realizes he actually has no idea what to do. So he just tries to imagine what a real Santa might do and opens the door and makes an entrance.
3: Ho, ho, ho.
1: Oh, ho, ho, ho. Who builds a house without a chimney? And they're freaking out. Is it Christmas Eve? They have no idea it's Christmas. It was the furthest thing from their mind. Let's do this anyway. I didn't have tremendous expectations going into it. And then when I did it, it was just this tremendous rush of emotions, and that's not a thing that happens to me a lot. I've been a pretty buttoned-up person most of my life. So when it was Santa for them, it became Santa for me. It's just one of the most powerful things I've ever felt in my life. When I'm him, I'm a completely different person. And all my little neuroses and doubts and you know faults and foibles, it's all gone. And all the problems that Alan has, Santa doesn't have any of those.
2: Alan loved this new version of himself. But pretty soon, Christmas was over, and so was medical leave. Which meant Alan's beard had to go. Because as a corrections officer, he had to be able to wear a gas mask in case a riot broke out at the prison. And you can't properly fit a gas mask over a beard. Alan couldn't afford to quit, so he grabbed his clippers and made himself shave off his beard. (sighs)
1: This is going to sound really weird. I still have that beard in a Ziploc bag. Really? Yeah. I mourned that beard.
2: Why do you still have it?
1: I probably shouldn't. But it it meant a lot to me. It was the key to the door that opened that let me do this. Hmm. And when I had to shave that beard off, I was pretty unhappy about it. I was upset.
2: The next year, Alan bought a fake beard to play Santa. But it looked so bad he couldn't bring himself to wear it. So, two years pass, without playing Santa. And then, thanks in part to his wife Erin, who's making enough money as an engineer to support them, Alan is finally able to retire. And he throws himself into becoming Santa. The goal is to become a professional Santa. The kind that someone might hire for, say, a private party or a parade. Or, the holy grail of Santa engagements, a chair gig. First thing, Alan starts growing his beard back. Then he signs up for Santa School, a weekend intensive where you learn everything from what to say to skeptical kids to how to make an entrance. He meets lots of other Santas who offer helpful tips like how to sneak in a bathroom break while staying in character. Apparently you're supposed to say you have to make a call to the North Pole.
1: Finding out there's this entire world you didn't know about has been a little weird. And sometimes you wonder how you got to this place in life. This is a deeply weird thing for, you know, middle-aged and elderly guys to do. But but it's kind of wonderful. I mean, it's, it's but it deeply strange
2: at the same time. By the time I'm talking to him, Alan spent almost a full year preparing for the role. He's a diligent and serious student of the Santa tradition. But there's one part of it he doesn't believe in. The naughty list. Surprising, maybe, given his last job.
1: You've been bad. You're on the naughty list. That's that's no way to be.
2: Mm. Feels punitive.
1: Exactly. And that's... I've seen punitive, and I don't think it works. So I want to be able to lift him up rather than put him in a corner somewhere and tell him that you're this thing.
2: Being Santa lets him work on the other side of the ledger, which feels a lot better to him.
1: I tried to do that job as well as I could, but, you know, it was really difficult. And uh, when you run into a lot of people that are sort of on the naughty list, um, and you can't do anything for them, and they can't do anything for themselves, it feels kind of hopeless. That's a lesson I learned from my career. People need redemption. They need to be accepted back into the fold, even if they've made mistakes.
3: Hmm.
1: You know, finding a way to to, uh, forgive other people sort of gives you an opening to forgive yourself. And there's a box of Kleenex here.
2: The day has finally arrived for Alan's first ever chair gig. We're driving to the event, which is at an abandoned Pier 1 in an outdoor mall, about a half an hour from his house. We hop out of the car and meet Joanna Garcia, who hired Alan for the event. She lets us in through the back door of the building. There's a single clothing rack with t-shirts on it. Alan takes the shirts off so he can use the rack to hang all the pieces of his Santa outfit. But he's so nervous, he keeps dropping stuff.
1: Almost jittery. It almost feels like I'm doing slapstick or something.
2: (laughs) A line forms outside while Alan changes into his costume. He's got a fur-lined red robe and matching hat and a green vest with gold buttons underneath. He's wearing big black boots and little half-moon spectacles that, I have to say, really pull the whole outfit together. But he still just looks like a guy in a costume. And then the doors open and the kids rush in.
1: Hello, everyone. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I love your dress.
2: Suddenly, he's Santa. Confident, arms stretched wide, beaming. Whatever the opposite of neurotic is, he is that. Two little girls walk in and spot him, and their eyes seem to double in size, like they're seeing something truly magical. It's clear they have no idea this is his first time doing this. To them, he's Santa.
1: Okay. Are we ready,
2: everybody? Yeah. The day begins.
4: Do you know what you want for Christmas, sweetheart?
2: Monster trucks.
4: Monster trucks? I love monster trucks. Rawr.
2: As you can hear, he's got his kid voice on. And I don't know what I expected exactly. But this job requires just so much pep. Santa Alan is tap dancing as fast as he can.
1: Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way
2: to keep the kids happy and engaged. Fish bump, yeah, blow it up, boom. <laughs> so the photographer, Sam, can snap a good picture for the parents.
0: Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, paw, 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 Patrol.
2: Watching Santa Allen, I thought about this thing another Santa, a pastor named Santa Don, told me. Santa Don said that back when he was in graduate school for psychology, on his first day of class, his professor asked, How many of you have people who are already coming to you for counseling? Don and a few other students raise their hands. Then the professor goes, I'm going to be honest with you. If people aren't already coming to you, getting a degree from here probably won't change that. You're either the kind of person people want to confide in, or you're not. Don thinks that the same is true for Santa. There's some innate Santa essence, some Santa vibe, that you either have or you don't. And here, on his first chair gig, Santa Allen seemed to have it. Though, it didn't always go so smoothly with every kid.
1: Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down,
2: Santa Claus. There were a lot of crying babies.
1: Oh, poor baby. I'm so sorry. We're- We'll get you next year. I'll see you on Christmas Eve, my friend. Here,
2: one more. Sometimes kids ask Santa Alan for things that threw him for a loop, like the boy who said he wanted trouble for Christmas, or the girl who just wanted socks.
1: But like character socks, right? Good socks? No, just regular sock socks? Okay, that's good.
2: One little girl wanted two hamsters, but as she asked for them, her parents stood behind her with wide eyes, vigorously shaking their heads no. Of course, There were some awkward moments, like when Santa Alan accidentally mistaked a boy with long hair for a girl. And this kid, who looked like a tiny adult and who was not having it with Santa Alan's questions.
1: I have animals. Do you know what kind of animals I have?
4: Uh, The pretend kind.
1: No, the real reindeer. They have antlers like this.
4: Yeah, I know. I've seen
1: them on TV. Have you seen Rudolph? Have you seen his nose?
4: Yeah, I know. I know lights
1: up. Yeah, it's lights up and it's red.
4: Yeah.
1: Are you going to school right now? No. No?
2: I'm
1: barely four. Oh, some people go to school when they're four.
2: Santa Allen had imagined fielding all these big, hard questions from kids. But in practice, the real work Thank of imitating so Santa is more like working a factory line. A quick back and forth, snap a picture then on to the next. The hardest question he ended up getting was about Mrs. Claus. I was gonna ask you if you you can ask Mrs. Claus if she actually does bake cookies. So like, if she does, can she send me one?
1: Well, I don't, she doesn't, she just mostly makes them for the North Pole, but we'll ask. And she is important. She is the CEO of the North Pole. Mrs. Claus is actually my boss.
2: Alan wanted to yes and, the little girl, but didn't want to promise cookies and set her up to be disappointed on Christmas Day. So instead, he pivoted to a feminist message. He later told me he wants to update the image of Mrs. Claus for kids, especially for girls. He doesn't like the idea that she just bakes cookies and putters around the North Pole all day. At 1 p.m., the doors are closed. Santa Alan's been there for two hours, talked to over a hundred kids. He changes out of his costume and into what's referred to as Santa casual. Red clothing, but not the whole shebang. Christmas light. He packs up and we get in the car. We're about to drive back to his house when Alan realizes he's left his backpack inside the store. This is a problem for him because he really doesn't want to go back and get it and have people see him when he's not in the full Santa costume. But. As we're walking back to the Pier 1, a guy in a car notices Alan. Santa? Alan puts his finger up to his lips, as if to say, Shh. <laughs> I won't say nothing.
3: <laughs>
2: I won't say nothing, the guy says. Then, we're standing in front of the store, waiting to be let back in, when a girl in the back seat of a car driving by yells, Santa.
1: Oh, jeez. You kind of don't want to ruin the image for anybody?
2: You feel embarrassed? I, I, yeah. Alan tries to tuck himself into the corner of the building by the door no to hide from people. Okay. But it doesn't work. At all. Forgetting. Everyone who passes by double-takes him or yells at him. Hey,
3: Santa. Hi.
2: Alan looks miserable. <laughs> it's funny, you've transformed back into Alan. I know. Without the robe. I know.
1: You're, you love watching me squirm like this.
2: No, <laughs> I don't. But I'm, I'm struck by the transformation, how different you are.
1: I guess I'm back to being Clark Kent or something, I don't know.
2: You're, you're literally cowering in a corner. I, this is not the man I saw 30 minutes ago. Well,
1: I'm, 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 I'm not him, I'm me.
2: Alan did not plan on ending his first chair gig glued to the side of a Pier 1. But there is a part of him, he tells me later, that's relieved to be himself again. All that cheeriness, being so enthusiastically on, it's exhausting being Santa.
0: Aviva de Kornfeld is one of the producers of our show. Fact two, Jews for Jesus for just one day. For Alex Adelman, it's easy to remember his first Christmas because it was his only Christmas. He was raised as an Orthodox Jew, and he says his family was very Jewish, casually dropped Hebrew around the house. He and his brother AJ called their parents Ima and Abba for mom and dad. He's a comedian and tells this story about how they were so Jewish and so surrounded by Jews, he didn't even know he was Jewish for a while.
4: And I remember the first time I was aware of being Jewish. I was at a children's birthday party at a Chuck E. Cheese, and I reached for a slice of pizza, that had some sausage on it or some pepperoni, something not kosher. And my grandfather saw me reaching and he kicked my hand away, (laughs) kicked. And he went, you can't have that, we're Jewish. And I said, what does that mean? And with a totally straight face, he just went, it means you'll never be happy. (laughs) And I went, Papa, I don't wanna be Jewish. And then my grandfather laughed at me and went, chief, That's the most Jewish thing there is.
0: (laughs) When Alex and his brother, AJ, were little, they attended yeshiva, Jewish day school. So like I say, their whole world was people who never celebrated or talked about Christmas. But in the show Alex has been touring, he talks about this one December, when he was six and AJ was four. He mentions, uh, by the way, a family friend in the story, and he changed her name when he tells the story on stage. Here's Alex. Alex.
4: All of the best Jewish moments of my life are moments where Jewish values presented themselves in like unconventional places. Like once when I was a kid, my family had Christmas. My mom had this friend named Kelly and Kelly had lost her siblings like in years previous and her parents weren't in the picture. She was alone in Boston and my mom noticed that she would get sad around the holidays and this is a really good friend. And so my mom said, hey, Kelly, why don't you come to our house for Christmas? That's the kind of person my mom is. My father did not want that. My mom is a Jew from Cincinnati. She's a Midwestern Jew. It's a slightly gentler existence. <laughs> my father grew up Jewish in Boston like me, but dad grew up Jewish in Boston in a time when it's actually really hard to be Jewish there, which is between the years 1500 and 1994. <laughs> He's like, Cheryl, I will not have Christmas in a Jewish home. And she's like, Elazar, we're having Christmas. And he's like, over my dead body are we having Christmas. So they compromised and we had Christmas. <laughs> AJ and I come downstairs one day. My parents are sitting in the living room. I don't know if anyone else grew up in a home like this. We were never allowed as children in the living room. Never. The living room was for guests and tragedies. Those are the only times we were allowed. And everything in the living room was covered with like a thick plastic sheet in case like the real owners of the home showed up one day. <laughs> we come downstairs. My parents were in the living room. No guests. And AJ and I look at each other like, oh, no, Bubby died again. And like, we walk in and we sit down on the forbidden couch. And my mom just went, boys, this year, we're going to have Christmas. And this is how young and insulated we were. AJ and I looked at each other, and we looked at my parents, and I decided, what's Christmas? And my father went, it's like Hanukkah. And my mom undermined him immediately and went, yeah, but maybe even a little bit more fun. <laughs> Hanukkah sucks. I appreciate the new politically correct world that everybody lives in, where we all pretend that all the holidays are equal. They are not equal. Everybody knows it. Hanukkah is very much the Diet Coke to Christmas's black tar heroin. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. And you never know when Hanukkah is, because the calendar is, sometimes it's in early December, sometimes it's in, like, late July, you never f-ing know. And my non-Jewish friends are always like, well, you guys are lucky, you get eight days of gifts." I have never met a single Jew who has ever received eight days of gift. Here's how it works. You get one gift over the course of the eight days. If you're getting a bike, you get like a pedal on the first day and the handlebars on the second day and the wheel on the third day. It is absolute bullshit. Anyway, (laughs) we do Christmas and oh my God, do we do Christmas. We do the lights. We do the stockings and glitter. We went whole hog. No hog, kosher Christmas dinner, but we deck these goddamn halls, deck, and Kelly comes into our house, and Kelly, white, wasp, like Princess Diana haircut, chunky gold earrings, Hermes scarf, shocking blue pantsuit, white. But she walks into our house like a little kid, and she starts to cry immediately. And my mom just went, boys, whatever Kelly wants to do, we're gonna do. And we did all this deep cuts Christmas stuff. Like we strung popcorn together on a string. We ate our way through an entire chocolate advent calendar in like 25 minutes. And we watch Christmas movies. Please try to imagine being a young Jew who has never seen a single Christmas movie. And then one day you watch like seven of them in a row. (laughs) AJ and I are like, what is this? (laughs) And the one that sticks out is the Peanuts Christmas special. Uh Snoopy, Charlie Brown, AJ and I are like, pressed up against the screen. We're like vibrating with joy. And AJ's like, the meaning of Christmas, Snoopy. And I'm like, the spirit of Christmas, Charlie Brown. My dad's in the corner like praying for lightning. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, Kelly crying, walks over to us and she's like, boys, we need to put out cookies for Santa Claus, don't we? And AJ and I are like, "Uh uh-huh. And we look at my dad who's already covering his face. And I just went, Abba? Who's Santa Claus? (laughs) And my father rarely cursed in front of us. And my mother says she doesn't think this happened, but I remember so clearly, and maybe he thought we couldn't hear him, my father looked at my mom and he went, Cheryl, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And my mom went, "Elazar," and he went, "Come on," and she went, "Do it." <laughs> my father walked up to us, and he went, "Santa Claus boys. He is a fat man. <laughs> and he comes down non-Jewish chimneys in the middle of the night, and he gives gifts to young Gentiles." He said, he's like Elijah, but instead of drinking your wine, he eats cookies and leaves you gifts. <laughs> if you don't know who Elijah is, on Passover, the Jewish holiday, in my house, here's what will happen. Your uncle will open the door for Elijah, and then one of the other uncles under the table will start kicking the table, and when the wine cup shakes, they'll go, look, he's drinking, he's drinking! <laughs> and agent and I look at each other. And we look at my dad and Adrian just went, but a which means for real. (laughs) And my father looked at my mom and he looked at us and he went, yeah, of course he's real. (laughs) We put out cookies for Santa Claus. I remember every little detail, little table, red tablecloth, Power Rangers plate, three childhood cookies. We're very skeptical, obviously. We go upstairs, we go to bed, we come downstairs the next morning, the cookies are gone. They're gone. And AJ and I see this and we black out completely. <laughs> we like lose consciousness. But I know what's happened, because I saw home videos a couple years ago, and on them we're like, oh my God, oh my God, he was here, he was here. And at some point, AJ's standing on the couch, and he looked at me, and he just went, Santa came! And I went, Baruch Hashem! (laughs) And we ran out to the garage. Why? This is the one concession my father got from my mom. He's like, Cheryl, I will not have a Christmas tree in a Jewish home. And she's like, I can respect that, Elazar. We'll put it in the garage. <laughs> and there are two photos of this. They're the weirdest photos. We're wearing jackets because we're in a Boston garage in December, but we're wearing pajamas because we're children, and we're wearing yarmulkes because we're Jews. But we're standing in front of a fully decorated Christmas tree with a teddy bear on the top holding a dreidel and wearing a yarmulke. (laughs) And we go to Yeshiva that day because Jewish day school, if you can believe it, not canceled for Christmas. (laughs) And we come home that night and my father gets a phone call. It's exactly what you think. And he picks it up, and the first thing the principal says to him is, Professor Edelman, your sons have a lying problem. <laughs> My father said, what did they do? And the principal said, well, the teacher tried to explain to the children the very delicate topic of Christmas. And Alex raised his hand, and he said, we had Christmas. <laughs> and the teacher said, you didn't have Christmas. And he said, Hmm, pretty sure we had Christmas. <laughs> Light, stocking, Snoopy, Charlie Brown, meaning Christmas, Christmas. Pre- and the teacher's like, you didn't have Christmas. You had Hanukkah three weeks ago or nine months from now, depending on the year. Anyway, <laughs> non-Jews believe in this guy called Santa Claus. And in my mind's eye, I remember AJ raising his hand and saying, we had Santa Claus. <laughs> That's what I remember. But there are conflicting accounts here Apparently, AJ didn't raise his hand. Apparently, AJ, in the words of the teacher, lifted two fingers, (laughs) like he was ordering a second martini. (laughs) And AJ didn't say, we had Santa Claus. Apparently, AJ just went, we know Santa Claus. (laughs) And the teacher's like, you don't know Santa Claus, AJ. And AJ's like, mm, pretty sure we know Santa Claus. And the other kids are like, who's Santa Claus? And AJ's like, oh, he's amazing. He's a fat man. And he comes down non-Jewish chimneys in the middle of the night and he gives gifts to the young Gentiles. He's like Elijah, but instead of wine, there's cookies and gifts. But last night, because he's friends with our dad, <laughs> He came down our chimney and he left this Walkman underneath the tree that my parents put in the garage and he ate all of the cookies. And the principal said, Professor Edelman, is this true? And apparently my father just went, no. (laughs) It's not entirely true. And the principal said, what do you mean it's not entirely true? And my father said, Cheryl and I ate the cookies. (laughs) AJ's wrong. Santa didn't come to our house. And my mom says there was a significant pause on the other end of the phone. And then the principal went, I know Santa didn't come to your house. You had Christmas? My father explained. He explained that Kelly was bereft and that she had nowhere to go and that he he had reservations about this but he let it happen because he thought it was actually a really valuable teachable moment where he could explain to his children that doing the thing centered in Jewish values may not always appear conventionally Jewish and more than anything else doing this for this woman who really had nowhere to go really it was a classic example of what Jews would traditionally call mitzvah, which means good deed. Principal listens. Dad explains. When my dad finishes, the principal said, Professor Edelman, I understand where you're coming from, but you're wrong. Because <laughs> what you've actually done is you've introduced this holiday that is foreign and corrosive into your home, and you've clearly confused your children and perhaps harmed them permanently. (laughs) Well, you've given them this holiday, and next year you're going to take it away from them. So what's that going to do? This isn't a good deed. This isn't a mitzvah. It's idol worship, which is like the most grievous sin that a Jew can possibly commit. And you and your wife need to begin repenting for that right now. And my father, to his credit, went, well, clearly, Rabbi, You don't understand the meaning of Christmas. And then he hung up the phone.
0: Alex Edelman with an excerpt of his one-man show, Just For Us. He's taking the show to London in January. To find out when he's bringing the show to your city, go to alexedelmancomedy.com. The radio excerpt of his story was produced for our show by Aviva de Cornfeld. Coming up, the hottest sexiest parts of It's a Wonderful Life, and other revelations about a very old film from a first-time viewer. That's in a minute, from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, Baby's First Christmas, stories of people trying something for the very first time at Christmas, and what that does for them. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Buffalo Gals, Can't You Come Out Tonight, So in this story, uh, the new experience that somebody's having at Christmas is simple. We have a grown man, a man who loves films, classic films, obscure films, new films, all kinds of films, and he's seen tons of them, who somehow has never seen the most pervasive movie that's out there at Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life. That man, somebody who's been on the show a bunch, one of our former producers, Neil Drumming, our executive editor, Emmanuel Berry, is in real life friends with Neil and took it upon herself to change his life forever or possibly not at all, and show him the film.
5: I've watched a lot of movies with Neil. It's fun because he gets so giddy and excited about showing you a movie you haven't seen. You always know you're going to have a thoughtful conversation afterwards. But I also sometimes hate it. Like when he recites all the dialogue and Dazed and Confused while you're trying to watch it. <clears throat> so how'd he miss this movie that's been on television every year since he was born?
6: I really, I feel like the Christmas Christmas movies that I love are the movies with Christmas in the background. Like, all British movies. But, like, Love Actually or, like, Die Hard. Or, like, movies with Christmas in the background. Christmas in the foreground. Like, I've never seen the one with the little kid with the glasses.
5: A Christmas Story?
6: Yeah. But, like, the movies that are just Christmas, I just didn't have a inclination to see them. I think it's because Christmas for me, was always in the background. Like, I was a Jehovah's Witness. So, yeah. so Christmas was, like, a thing that happened around me.
5: No Christmas tree, no Christmas carols, no Christmas movies. Given that, what is your favorite uh, Christmas movie? Christmas in the background movie, I guess is what we're I mean, calling them.
6: I think Die Hard is clearly my favorite Christmas movie.
5: I mean, I am I hate to be so traditional,
6: like, as a so male. So traditional. <laughs> I mean, because a lot of men, a lot of people, a lot of men will say that Die Hard is their
5: favorite Christmas movie.
6: It is Is it just your favorite movie? It is in my top five consistently.
5: Neil, you see, is a classic example of the problem. I think there's a world of people out there who haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life because their impression is it's just some corny, Hallmarky movie. Weirdly, I think the most popular Christmas movie out there is also somehow the most underrated by people like Neil. To be upfront about this, I love It's a Wonderful Life. I love the romance of it, the darkness, the humor. I love Jimmy Stewart, the lead actor, and his bumbling charm. Zuzu's petals, the broken banister. I love it all. It's not just my favorite Christmas film. It's my favorite film. And I want Neil to see what I see. What
6: do you know about It's a Wonderful Life? It's a Christmas movie because it happened it's always on the air during Christmas. Uh-huh. But and I know I think I I think Macy's is involved or something.
5: Wrong. Here's what else he thinks he knows. Jimmy Stewart. It's in black and white. And he saw something on Instagram that it's about a person losing everything.
6: Which makes me think it's like, maybe it's like some kind of like Yuletide retelling of the Job story. Okay. I don't know, that's a guess.
5: Another reason It's a Wonderful Life holds a special place in my heart, the ending of the film actually makes me get a little teary. I'm not a crier. I'm embarrassed by the idea of a film making me cry. But for lots of people, I think It's a Wonderful Life sneaks up on you. Do you think you will cry? I mean I absolutely will not cry.
6: The only movie <laughs> I can think of that I cried at was like there was a Will Smith movie where he played like a poor father once. I can't remember what the name of that movie was.
5: Pursuit of Happiness.
6: Yes, Pursuit of Happiness. You cried a,
5: during Pursuit of Happiness? Cuz he had this
6: thing of, he had some long speech about failure as a man and it just oh, wow. like, I, think, the...
5: I don't know if you you might cry Neil.
6: <laughs> yeah, okay, but if it's a, if it's a, I mean, okay, that was a few years ago. Let's see if I if if there is a long speech about failing as a man, then maybe I'll cry. Because that's That's a subject close to my heart.
5: (laughs) We start the film. In case you, like Neil, haven't seen it, the movie is about George Bailey, a bright, goofy, and friendly young man who wants to see the world but keeps getting stuck in his hometown. First, it's a job that keeps him there, his father passes, and he takes his place running the family business. Then, it's a romance George meets Mary at a dance where they fall into a pool. And they're forced to walk home in whatever dry clothing they can wrangle together. Mary is in a bathrobe, and George is in a football uniform three sizes too big. Buffalo girl, can't you come out tonight and Neil loves a rom-com, a good meat cute You know, if it wasn't me talking, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town.
0: Well,
6: why don't you say it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I will say it. This
5: oh, is hot. Anyway. <laughs>
4: it's hot this is hot what do you mean it's hot <laughs> this is a hot meat cube oh, this hot is shirt. hot it's a very good meat cube am i talking too much yes <laughs> why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death how's that why don't you kiss her instead of talking her this to is death?
6: wild sexy this is amazing to me <laughs> this is so hot to I'm me gonna kiss her, huh
4: oh you just wasted on the wrong. <laughs>
5: The chemistry between the two leads on this fateful walk home, I can tell Neil's at least somewhat sold. George and Mary get married. And just when George is about to get out of town, travel with his wife, there's a bank run. Uh Then after that, a war. war. Each time he's faced with another obstacle, restuck, he sticks around, tries to fix it. Until one fateful Christmas Eve. His business is about to go under because of a careless mistake made by one of his employees. But George is the one who will be held responsible. He's lost, feels like he has no place to turn. He goes home, Mary and the kids are decorating for Christmas, and he snaps. George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, George. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids?
7: <laughs> I don't
5: know. Damn! Not so Merry Christmas is it, Neil?
6: I'm, I'm with it. Let's get darker. Let's, go, let's see how dark this is. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Let's go darker. This is horrible. <laughs>
5: George wishes he'd never, wish been, never born. been born, and an angel named Clarence makes his wish come true. Got your wish. He sees what the town would be like if he didn't exist, and it's horrible. Ruled by money grubbing robber barons, nobody has jobs or hope. Hey, what's going on around here? Neil points out it's very much like a film he has seen Back to the Future. Well, to Only then does George realize the impact his life has made, and that he, in fact, had a wonderful life. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Help me, Clarence! Clarence takes back George's wish. He runs home to his family, and then everyone in town shows up and gives him money so his business will survive. Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble, and they scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just the George in trouble. uh, (laughs) I look over at Neil. No tears. But when the film ends, he tells me that he liked it, and he was surprised by it, and recognized that it was not just a Christmas film.
3: I
6: definitely forgot it was a Christmas movie. I stopped <laughs> thinking about it as a Christmas movie. It doesn't feel that. Like, that doesn't feel like what it's about yeah. until they sing
5: Oleg I L'Exam. thought it was so funny when you were saying at the beginning that you were like, oh, yeah, like Christmas movies or Christmases in the background. I was like, yeah, this is, this is one <laughs> this of those is films, background.
6: actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even the Oleg Zime is like, to me, is a New Year's thing. It's yeah. like the Christmas part it doesn't really come back to Christmas. It's not like about that. You know what it's like. A lot. It's like Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. No, like, oh,
5: okay. Say more. Know.
6: They okay. The both the theme of both of them is to like that things aren't as bad as you think. Is that just like your life could that if you stop and appreciate your life? Okay. Not even just if you. It's not just that you stop and appreciate your life. It's that circumstance, dire circumstance, forces you mm. to appreciate your life. So in Die Hard like a series of ridiculously absurd terrorist type events makes it so that like he appreciates his, his marriage and his family more and he fights to save them. That's what I love about that movie. That's literally the thing I love the most about that movie is how like, it is kind of a romantics film. Like it's like, wait, everything I had was great. I should go back and save it. And this is that same thing of just like in the moment when things are bad You can feel like it wasn't worth it, but if you like stop and look at it, it's worth saving. It's like worth preserving. Mm -hmm. It's the end of the year. Like, maybe that these kinds of movies are supposed to like remind us that, like, amongst all the things you did wrong, there's something, there's like, it's ultimately worth it. I don't know. Yeah. But maybe that's a common theme of like movies that air at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe we just want to be reassured going into the next year that like what we did wasn't completely a waste of time
5: at one point while we're talking about the film neil asks why i cry at that moment the townspeople come out to support george and i say it's nice to think that people might recognize all that you do for them neil tells me maybe that's why i'm emotional because i do a lot for other people and neil says maybe that's why he's not so emotional because well he doesn't not news to me case in point what I did for him this Christmas gave him the gift of watching It's a Wonderful Life. What he did for me got me to watch Die Hard.
0: Emmanuel Berry is our show's executive editor. Back four Single Bells. Sachi Cole Is celebrating a Christmas first of her own this year. One that she is still puzzling through. Here she is.
7: My marriage was over by last Christmas, but I didn't notice because I was having such a nice time. One of my ex's many radiant qualities was how much he liked the holidays, always in stark contrast to me, a misery gremlin who recently escaped a bog and is allergic to natural sunlight. I didn't really grow up celebrating Christmas, I was raised Hindu by immigrants who just didn't really care about the holiday. The extent of our decorations was a sparse plastic tree with screwed-in branches that looked like if a spruce had recently been set ablaze. Our family's dedication to the holiday was always cartoonishly pathetic. But when I met my ex a little over 10 years ago, I realized that being with him meant being with a Christmas person. It was like joining a cult where the belief structure was built around a glazed ham. Being with him meant we bought a real, live tree, year after year, filling our apartment with pine needles that I'd find until we bought the next, real, live tree. Doesn't it smell great, he'd say, and I'd reply with, no, because years of cigarette smoking has robbed me of a sense of smell. My ex-husband was practically competitive about gift-giving. Always giving me the best gift, the thing I wanted, sometimes even the several things I wanted. One year, he took me to Cuba. Another year, he bought me a Nintendo console that had been reliably sold out for months. The year after that, delicate diamond studs for my non-deserving ears. I got him a bag, like three times. Just three different bags. I don't know, he seemed to need a lot of bags. I don't know what I'm doing out here, okay? I resented Christmas and his love for it often. We used to fight about how I wanted to go see my family for the holidays, even though there wasn't much of a holiday to speak of, and how he wanted to go back to his sleepy little hometown with the three-car Santa Claus parade and his stepmother's gingerbread village that the grandchildren bickered over and the mince sauce with his dad's lamb and the Christmas brunch with his mother. I was always fighting against my instincts to hate everything, to be cynical, to ask to be left alone. I didn't like Christmas because it required so much sincerity, and emotional intelligence I clearly, obviously, still lack. We separated in February, and he's now off building a life I know nothing about. I was worried about how he'd do, alone at Christmas. But you know who is alone, in actuality? Me, the Christmas hater. I'm Grinch at the top of the mountain, looking down at the denizens of Whoville, asking in the smallest voice possible, do they miss me down there? Because though I was always loath to admit it, I did like so many things about Christmas with his family. I did like how I always felt warm and soft between December 23rd and 26th, like I was a big fat baby in a plush blanket. I became comfortable with it, and eventually I learned to look forward to it. Christmas with him and his people was the closest to cortisol zero I've ever gotten in my life. My ex-husband's mother and stepmother always told me they loved me on Christmas day when we exchanged gifts, and I always said it back. I meant it, too. A rarity for me. I liked being a daughter-in-law and offering to help with the turkey even though I have no idea how to cook a turkey. There was comfort in opening the garage door and seeing his cousins piled in there wearing old Labatt sweaters, chain-smoking and fighting over who stole whose lighter, all these 40-something-year-olds reverting to who they were when they were 17. My ex grew up somewhere without the pollution of a big city, so you could always see the stars. I wish I had spent more time looking at them. To marry into a family that loves Christmas is to be conscripted into something that feels pleasingly conspiratorial. You know exactly what you need to do and where and for whom. The days pass and inch you closer to December 24th, and you have a precise awareness of what's expected of and for you. And when the holiday is done, you have all these little secrets to whisper to each other in delight. Remember that year my mom put brown sugar in the eggs she made for Christmas Day brunch? My husband would whisper into my mouth while we lay in bed, after we returned to our lives in New York, to the albatross that increasingly was our marriage, I'd laugh and say, yes, but we ate it, because we love her, and we love each other. Right? We love each other. Say it one more time, just so I'm sure that you're sure. Now, all I feel is this constant twinge in my gut. It's like having a tail cut off. I wasn't supposed to even have one, but I did for a while, and now I don't. I thought about spending Christmas alone this year. I could do something devastating and romantic, like take myself on a solo vacation, maybe somewhere sunny, where I'd swan around in drapey fabric and look sad and hot and sad, maybe at a resort. Everyone there would think I had a secret, but the secret is (gasps) I'm sad. Instead, on both hands, I count the people I won't speak to this December. His folks, his siblings, his nieces and nephews, the cousin of his that was my favorite, the other cousin of his who always spent too much time touching my lower back, his aunt, who always called me Sasha, even ten years in. I'll add this pain to the several others that harden me from the inside out. The first year of divorce is just a march of agonies, every notable event the first one you do by yourself, First birthday where we don't even speak. First family medical crisis where we don't cling to each other like driftwood in a tsunami. And now, our first Christmas apart. My grief around my divorce remains wildly unpredictable. I don't have any strategy or plan on how to cope with the holidays. I just have to walk through a TJ Maxx and glare at the Christmas display and how I have no use for a Santa Claus cookie jar. I never did, but now I really don't. In the end, I decided to just go home this year and lick my wounds amongst my own family. My 12-year-old niece and sister-in-law celebrate Christmas with glee. There are cookies to be iced and an embarrassment of riches under the tree and a fireplace and a mini dachshund named Beans who will gladly snap a hunk of turkey off of your fork. Even my dad enjoys Christmas if forced. He will never say no to a slice of pecan pie after a dinner that he complains does not have enough masala. I could conceivably find pleasure in this holiday again if I worked at it, but I don't want to right now. It's not that I like or dislike the holiday. It's simply that now it hurts my feelings. I crave nothing more than indifference to view Christmas as but another holiday that isn't mine. Easter, Hanukkah, Eid, you won't see me crying over Casimir pulaski Day. For the last year, everything has felt either triumphant or devastating, and it would be nice to feel, instead, nothing at all.
0: Cole is the author of One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter, and a cultural reporter at BuzzFeed News. Her story was produced by Diane Wu. Produced today with Holiday Spirit by Sean Cole. The people who put together today's program include Jane Ackerman, Ben Matawunmi, Michael Kamate, Aviva de Kornfeld, Cassie Halley, Valerie Cabdisto, Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Shipp, Christopher Surtala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editors, Sarah Abderrahman. Our senior editors, David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks to Ned Larry Weissman, a.k.a. DJ Preschool, Rachel Albert, Ben Levine, Phoenix Henkel, and Majestic Retail in Redlands, California, where we recorded Santa Allen. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive. That's over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite episodes, there's tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. X is always Joe Program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he came into my office this week and spent like, I don't know, 25 minutes working on the settings on my web browser. I really had no idea what he was doing. Finally, he turns to me, triumphant, and declares,
1: The cookies are gone!
0: I'm Ira Glass. Merry Christmas. Happy Holiday. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Wherever you are, hey friends, friends, who
3: singing is a lot more fun than you ever know. So come on now, join me in the first. So come on now, join me in the first. So come on now, join me in the first. So come on now, join me in the first, and so the first and so the first and 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 the, the, the first, first first, first